0: We all have secrets and sometimes these secrets, and I think you mentioned this in your book, dominate in the voice and message and volume as to who we are and our place in the universe.
1: Does it sound odd to say, I like the spiritual discipline of confession? You know, a number of years ago, Christy, the woman I married, she gave me a quote about confession that's been so helpful. She said, remember, confession is not an act to degrade yourself. It's about being set free. And you know, she's right. I found it really helpful through the years to experiment with this discipline in its many forms. And sometimes it can even take on a a sort of joyful posture. Look, I was wrong and I want to make things right. And so asking for forgiveness from God and others can be a movement towards something beautiful. I've found it to be a gift when it can become a natural practice that I'm openly embracing. Letting our darkness sit for years, it, it only makes this task more daunting, more difficult. As I saw this discipline on the schedule, I knew just who to talk to. He's a dear friend from my years as a professor. He's really been a teacher for me. Conversations with him have rung out long after his words were spoken. You may remember him from episode 22 and 37. His name is Paul Patton. He's a playwright, a bit provocative in a really good way. He's also an artist, an author, a professor and recently become an artist-in-residence in in the Communication Department at Spring Arbor University. My name is Nathan Foster, and welcome to the Renovare Podcast.
0: Paul, how are you, friend? I'm doing well. I'm doing well, Nathan. Blessings on you. Great. Great to see you, hear your voice. We miss you at Spring Arbor.
1: Mm, thank you. You know, uh, w- one of the things I really miss is getting to have lunch with you. Oh, uh, such a fun. treat for me.
0: <laughs> me too. And uh, my gra- my grandkids will get to read your reference to those conversations in uh, making more <laughs> than you think. So uh, that that is a delight. It'll probably be read at my funeral and get a lot of laughs. laughs, <so>. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Were you happy with the way the description came out?
0: Oh, of course I was. I was snorting. It was fun. <laughs> good, good. I
1: loved. It It was so fun to get to. Yeah. Hey, yeah. T- tell me about. You're moved into a new position of artist in residence.
0: Yes, yes, yes. I'm. I'm. Uh, uh, our department's artist in residence, and I'm teaching part-time, part time. Part-time. Part part time. I'm teaching a com theory course and a senior seminar course, which is kind of a wrap-up course, but uh, having a blast um, doing some uh, uh, scripture recitation performances and um, and also having a blast um, uh, directing uh, uh, an old show of mine, Lifting the Veil, about Catherine Coleman and her very obscure marriage to another faith healer, Burroughs Waltrip. I mean, in, uh, an incredible story. and So I'm having a lot of fun at 65, you know, uh, twenty-three years longer living than Sören Uh, You know, how my brother who died, my younger brother who died at fifty-nine. I'm still alive at sixty-five. Nathan, and I have—I hope—what is some redemptive survivor's guilt? You know, I mean, why do I get to live this long? I mean, mm. but it's, i am I'm, I'm enjoying it immensely and enjoying uh, quasi-retirement a lot as yes. well. Yes,
1: good, good. Just last week, I was telling someone about a play of yours, the Kansas church play. Meeting in Kansas. I was thinking about that play and how powerful it was to be in the room, right? And the yelling and the intensity. Maybe, could you just describe it to people? I just think it's such a beautiful idea.
0: It's a a series of plays that, that are about 40, 45 minutes really designed to go into a classroom, into a church sanctuary, uh, into a, any size auditorium, and uh, uh, what they are is reenactments of, of conflicts in history, particularly church history, uh, that might have shaken not just a church, but a continent. Uh, the first of the series is called Meeting in Kansas, and uh, it's set in 1858, Bloody Kansas, right? where uh, it's a relate you know Congress said you know the, the people there will determine whether it's going to be a slave or free state And so everybody was moving in and people were killing each other over the issue of abolition and, 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 and slavery. And so uh, the, the setting is a, a Methodist Episcopal Church in a fictitious town of Marston, Kansas. And it's a small Methodist Church and it's dominated by a John Brown type, uh, man who calls himself deacon, who's one of the major elders and who kind of um, dwarfs the young pastor who's trying to make sense of of, of, of the battle. And what happens, it's a, a abolitionist dominated church and two slave owners uh, who love God and, and, and this is the only church around want to join the church. And as soon as it comes out who they are and what they believe, all hell breaks loose. And so it's a mm-hmm. reenactment of, the pro-slavery, pro-abolitionist uh, position, and uh, it ends quite, you know, verbally violently. Mm-hmm. With uh, and even in the end, the young pastor, so blown away by what he thinks that he can't manage, ends up resigning. There's another. There's another in the in the sequence. It's called uh, in the play series called "Meeting in M- in Munich," which is set in 19. 19- what is it? 1933, uh, uh, J- January uh, December 33 Germany and Hitler has just ordered all of the uh, uh, of the Lutheran youth groups uh, <clears throat> uh, assimilated into the Hitler youth. Half mm-hmm. the parents say, yes, we should do it because he's St. Peter tells us to obey the king. Adolf Hitler's the king right now, the other half of the parents say, not with our kids. We're, you're not going to do this. And so all of the action um, uh, takes place in the uh, auditorium space. So mm-hmm. people come in thinking they're going to see a play, and the play is all around them. Yes, um, yes. Uh, And in fact, in the Meeting in Munich play, I have the privilege of, uh, the daunting privilege of, of, of playing the Fuhrer and reenacting uh, 10 minutes, 12 minutes of his of infamous speech of January 30th, 1933. Uh, uh, 19, uh, yeah, uh, 1939, where he defends his treatment of what he calls renegade Christians and his treatment of, of Jews. Uh, this is long before the world at large knew about uh, the Holocaust. Mm. Uh, but uh, so reenacting uh, some major uh, tensions and conflicts um, and uh, we found that uh, audiences have have, have have gone away quite shaken, mm. and something that theater, in many ways, sh- should do uh, mm. more often than it does. So thanks for asking about those. I love talking and, and <laughs> love producing "Meeting in Kansas" and "Meeting in Munich." Yeah, in fact, I'll tell I'll, I'll tell your audience this story quickly. Yeah, uh, we were once uh, "Meeting in Kansas" at the one-room schoolhouse across from the university. Uh, in fact, we found a, a couple of uh, schoolhouses uh, in its production history that are, you know, pre-Civil uh, War era. Mm-hmm. And uh, it ends so loud and people are just screaming, uh, you know, across the aisle uh, that a sheriff came. Somebody <laughs> from the neighborhood had called the sheriff thinking that there was some uh, violent, uh, verbal violence, potential problem going on. And no, this is just a play, but, uh, that was, uh, and we can't imagine what it was like to live during those, um, Pre-war times in the 1840s and 50s, especially as a result of some of the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Uh, You know, people were just uh, willing to to kill each other over these. In Mm -hmm. fact, it it reminds you of another era, doesn't it? Yeah, I I was I I saw it there
1: at the schoolhouse in Spring Arbor. And yeah, yeah. what caught yeah. me was that, you know, the person behind me and sitting to the side were part of the play and they're starting to yell, you know. Um, but what I was referencing, so powerful and disturbing in, in a helpful way, what, what I was referencing to, to someone the other day was how seldom we uh, I deal with conflicts face to face. And when someone, exactly. you know, there's a person in front of me rather than a person that
0: I'm typing to. And Absolutely. Yeah, it just makes it real and powerful. Yeah, absolutely, I, I will tell you that meeting in Kansas. Kansas ends with uh, the deacon character um, uh, choking the slave owner, and and I'll, I'll give a little bit of the plot away. This the slave owner, who's uh, again a very sanguine kind of guy, not your stereotypic white suited, thin mustachioed, uh, you know, uh, whip carrying uh, uh, slave hater. Um, mm-hmm. No, this is a this is shall we say a good old boy, very easy to like. And his final trump to try to convince the church that he's not and his position is not evil, he brings in one of the slaves, mm-hmm. the slave Jesse, and 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 uh, Jesse inadvertently becomes this, the, the 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 target of an interrogation between both sides, and he runs out in terror. Uh, partly because he's never been in a as he describes it white white folk church before Mm -hmm. and so um that's and i've had audience members say to me it's the first time that they saw the personification of the horrors of this as an institution right and people Mm -hmm. just oftentimes weep at 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 the brokenness Mm -hmm. of 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 jesse's condition Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but 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 the why the slave owner brings him in to show him off is, you know, he talked to Jesse about Jesus. Now he didn't teach him how to read, but he talked to him about Jesus, got him ready for heaven, and um, and he thought that that was going to be the the, the necessary self justification to mm. to allow these abolitionists to uh, be a little easier on him.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's,
0: it's powerful, Paul. Very powerful. That actually uh, ties in
1: with confession, Hmm? looking at uh, these blind spots and sins of people throughout history. Give us some thoughts on
0: the spiritual practice of confession. Well, first off, I would say that I I want to go with the prophets. Let me go there first and Hmm. say that um, as Jesus reminded us um, in in his confrontation of the Pharisees, his ideological opponents in Matthew 23, that that they they were mostly all of them murdered. Okay, okay. Um, uh, even even though he says that the Pharisees, who uh, were his contemporaries, would say we would not have participated in that. But think about why the, uh, the the prophets were murdered. Generally, it's because what they attacked, what they confronted with great courage, were the self-justification systems of kingdoms, of kings, of of of, of royal families. Of, of, of socioeconomic classes, all of them, right? From the least mm-hmm, to the greatest, mm-hmm. they're all greedy for gain, as Jeremiah said in, 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 in chapter six. Um, but uh, confessions uh, um, are generally, in my view, about uh, being able to identify, uh, uh, among, among other things, our self-justification systems for uh, our, our practices, and patterns and attitudes that are less than uh, than God fearing, less than God eye honoring, and less than uh, 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 respectful of the image of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, that that's where I would go first. Is that what confessions of sin, confessions of weakness, confessions of of uh, uh, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, as, as, as the epistle, uh, John said in this first epistle, what they do is they begin helping us think about our own self-justifications for whatever attitude we're copying, whatever action we're doing, whatever words we're saying that we, that we spoo, that, that, that divide and are dishonoring. So uh, self-justification systems, uh, for instance, you know, criminologists. Mm-hmm. uh uh what they study among other things is the self-justification systems of of criminals in quotes all right mm-hmm. and again i'm not wanting to deny the, the, the fact that in in the worst of moments i can see the, the criminal in myself but um for instance uh thieves if they're caught um and they find that they're serial thieves what happens to them? Generally, there. If, if if it's a juvenile, they're put into uh, some kind of twelve-step uh, program, if you will, in, in in the juvenile home. And and what does uh, the group do with the new person who's the caught thief now spending time in juvenile or in prison for his for his actions? What 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 does the group attack him about his self-justifications? Mm-hmm. Well, part of those self-justifications for the thief is they never can think about, never think about their victims. And the group process helps them to thar- start thinking about their victims, leading them to a kind of practical repentance, getting them to a place of courageous confession. For me, being able to admit and look at, uh, they might not be crimes against the state, but my, but my lust for power, my lust for approval. Um, is something that 's inhumane and not not something that 's uh, in keeping with the order and wisdom of god it 's something that minimizes the, the blessedness of belonging not because i 've ascended up a hierarchy of renown um, uh, intellectually or artistically, but because I belong to the Son of God all even something that attitudinal um, sin. Mm -hmm. of of approval lust. For me being able to to confess this and in the process also thinking about what are the self-justifications that allow me to sustain this, that's where I go first. Uh, What is it that killed the prophets? What what are the prophets that I'm killing and turning off? Uh, Because I don't want to be shown Mm -hmm. my weaknesses. I don't Mm -hmm. want to be shown my limitations that's generally where I, I go first. Does that help? I mean, is oh, that
1: it's really helpful? It reminds me of. Um, so when I was in grad school, I, my internship, part of it was leading domestic violence offender treatment groups. Yes. And it was really interesting because we'd get a new person in the group. And, and, you know, I'd say, tell us your story, how you got here. And it was so cliche. I mean, not all the guys. But most of the guys, first time coming in, they had all the stories about how it was the police's fault, their spouse or, you know, and it it almost became comical. And I would with the group, I had a good group with some guys who, you know, really done some good work. Uh, I just kind of go, well, what do you think, guys? Do you have any questions for for Bob? You know, and it's almost like I turn them loose because they just go off.
0: Exactly. And so what they would go off on is the self-justification system set in place, the mechanism. And what the prophetic act did is it it confronted, uh, infiltrated and dismantled that self-justification system. And so uh, that's what uh, the power of people helping us to confess and the power of coming to a place where we're recognizing, look at. I need to confess this as, mm-hmm. as, as weakness, as strong, as sin, as self-destructive, relationally destructive, institutionally destructive. So um, the, the power uh, of the prophets uh, in bringing us to a place of confession, mm-hmm. because our conscience can be easily domesticated, mm-hmm. particularly <laughs> if we're in the habit of ignoring it. Right. Conscious, easily domesticated. domesticated. We, uh, 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 what did what did C.S. Lewis say? He said, "The more we obey the conscience, the more it demands of us, and so we find we find great self justification in ignoring it or are doing." doing the the dance of of, of self justification and blame shifting as we yeah. both know, because I know I've been a blame shifter uh, uh, pretty steadily, but uh, uh, that's a person who who consistently is 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 in denial and not ready to make, make the kind of confessions they need to make
1: the thing that would Catch me or stuck out to me, and some of these extreme examples are much easier to see than, yeah, yeah. you know, some of our own kind of personal pieces. But is it almost a sense of like, would you just knock it off? Because you can't get better until you can admit what you've done, and you got a lot of work ahead of you. Yeah, but if you're going to yeah. sit and blame everybody, we're just, you yeah. know, we're wasting everyone's time. Yeah, um, yeah. So there is a, a, a real sense of um, freedom, I think, in being able to. Um, look honestly at our self-justification
0: systems? Yes, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Isn't it, uh, isn't it the case of, uh, of James, uh, the half brother of our Lord, uh, one of the early martyrs of the church who said, and it was, it was not a suggestion. It was a command, uh, 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 confess your sins one to another mm-hmm. and pray for each other. And of course, this was one of the texts that was so influential in John Wesley's life as he built these bands of, of, of confession. And, um, and uh, certainly, uh, uh, there there is uh, some health, more than some health, involved in in, in finding friends that can be uh, accepting and loving, and yet recognizing. Look at uh, we are fractured creatures, and and who was it? Uh, who was it? That, uh, there's a there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. What do you think it is that keeps us
1: from exposing our self-justification systems?
0: I think, and this is one of the three major categories, as uh, John Barclay, son of William Barclay, describes, um, three categories of bad norms. Uh, He calls the three bad categories of bad norms that are rooted in Paul's description uh, from First Corinthians twelve to fourteen, uh, a- ethnicity and race, uh, uh, aggressive competition, and the one I'm going to talk about uh, in answer to your question is uh, status hierarchy. Hmm. I think that that um, we are so distorted in our sense of of practiced belonging uh, as as sons uh, and daughters of God, as sons, daughters, and sons of a family, as as as. As members of churches, uh, what what we would prefer to uh, identify is where we are in the status hierarchy uh, of of any institution. Um, uh, and And part of it we're, we're resisting the importance of confessing honestly our weaknesses and our limitations and our screw ups is because we're afraid that that will lead to a hierarchical dissension. Uh, in mm-hmm. fact, this is how, in my view, uh, is that any insult that we experience, Nathan, if we think about it, it's traced to somebody thinking that we are lower in the hierarchical status of a friendship group, of an artist group, of a ministerial group, of celebrities. We are so status conscious much more than we realize. And so we're afraid somebody's going to be thinking less of us or uh, or take us down a few few steps in that ladder. And again, uh, Paul... Mentions this in First Corinthians chapter twelve and ch- chapter fourteen. Interestingly, bookending the the love chapter. But my contention is that's part of it, hmm. and another is that we, particularly in our in our public persona, we are so afraid of shame. Hmm. And what is shame? It's generally uh, uh, triggered when uh, our public persona has been has been assaulted. Uh, Realistically or uh, unfairly. And sometimes, as we know, shame is associated with guilt. And sometimes it has nothing to do with guilt. Sometimes, sometimes it's just neuroses. But I think that that's part of it, particularly when we're trying to find out who we are in a face of uh, uh, amongst six billion, seven billion other faces. We're very insecure about having to admit. Um, uh, our, our faults, our weaknesses, our struggles, our sins. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, part of it is uh, probably also for a lot of people, uh, rarely experiencing uh, the safety of sanctuary in family, in relationships, in church, in uh, when we try to uh, to train directors here, we try and tell them theater directors that look at part of your job is to protect the sanctuary, make it a safe place so that people can feel safe to share and make mistakes and stumble and get yes, up. Again. So actors but, can feel safe. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So artists can. And so this is, uh, uh, it's a very, it's an invitation to a vulnerability that, that, that most of us are not very good at because we don't have that much practice. We might internally find ourselves immobilized with uh, feelings of shame and guilt, but we don't have anyone generally to to share that with. Mm
1: -hmm. So, this this idea that sometimes our self justification systems are in place to make sure that we're staying at a certain kind
0: of level in others' eyes and then in our own, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I remember as a pastor serving communion. Right. And, and you're saying because you believe this, this is this is the body and blood of Christ, the, the, the broken body of Christ broken for you. And yet I couldn't help it sometimes. And The Lord has forgiven me for this. But congregants who I knew did screwy things and I was their confessor and I'm, I'm having to having to serve as if it didn't matter. Mm-hmm. And, I, and certainly, I wasn't. They weren't going to tell the church, nor was I going to tell the church everything. But I'm realizing that we all have secrets, and sometimes these secrets—and I think you mentioned this in your book—dominate sometimes uh, in in the voice, and message, and volume as to who we are and our place in in, in the universe. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, we're 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 insecure creatures. Who was it? The the disciple of uh, Freud um Adler said to be human is to be insecure and i think that part of that insecurity is manifest in our unwillingness to be open about our sin mm-hmm. our, our, our limitations our our, our failures mm-hmm. yeah. and the
1: the maybe i don't know if irony is the right word but sadness tragic aspect to it is that it, that's how we can grow right and there's great freedom in saying here's the truth about me yeah exactly you know Um, i'd like uh, that truth to not be true and so you know move forward
0: absolutely working with artists uh, on this uh the confession of failure I I, I tell people, filmmaker, filmmaking students that I work with, I said, every day, you know, you need to understand every day, probably there's a, there's a filmmaker out there who she or he has spent all of their life savings, borrowed money from their parents, from their friends. And then they realize today that the film is a failure. Hmm. That's, that's, that's vulnerability. We don't, you know, how, how do you coexist with that vulnerability and that shame? Um, Uh, And how do you confess it and and make sure that it becomes the instrument by which you are transformed and ready to take on another project? Mm -hmm. These are important things. By the way, on that topic, T.S. Eliot said this. He said, uh, the one thing you can do when you're humiliated after a confession (laughs) uh, or or knowing you're humiliated after some kind of failure, including an artistic one, "The one the one thing you can do is nothing. Wait. You will find that you survive humiliation and that's and that's an insight of incalculable value mm-hmm. I'm, I'm reminded and I have to remind my students and my my co-laboring Arthur, uh, uh, artists that uh, we are called to confess our sins and we are we are called to love each other despite our failures mm-hmm. uh, we have um, we have a a um, uh, an artistic practice here at the college where, uh, and we're starting it again this year. It's called the Cork series. And the only way you can be involved is kind of a variety show, kind of setting that live inspired in a sense. So if a bit works, we bring it back the next quarter, right? But to be in the show, you have to do, you have to, it has to be something new. It can't be the same joke. It can't be the same juggling act. It can't be the same song. You have to be able to do something new, a new joke, a new story, a new persona, a new hairdo, whatever, right? And and what happens is, is the audience is learning and the performers are learning that, look, we're trying to build a space of grace where people are free to take risk and fail. Mm. And uh, we're finding that that is something that really cultivates More creative, more creative communities Mm -hmm. when they create that kind of environment, and I think that that's the kind of the small group environment probably that John was talking about when he's when that James was talking about, confess your sins one to another and and pray for for each other that you might be healed, Mm -hmm. James five,
1: Mm -hmm. right. That's interesting that um, I'm just connected a little bit then, Uh, being in a space where it's safe for me to try out new artistic material not to have to worry about being devastated or shamed for for that that somehow this is helps the artists
0: and it's a sort of confessional space absolutely absolutely and i think it's something that's true interpersonally and in small group uh, uh in communities uh, uh and again we're building and this is something that helps to build the sanctuary it's a safe place.
1: Mm-hmm. That's good. I like how you're you're taking this with with artists. And so, one of the questions I had for you is: as a um, playwright, an actor, yeah. Um, yeah. Wh- how does art help with our practice of confession, or does it? Is there a place in
0: there? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, what and this is and this is the grace of God. Uh, the the narrative structures. A story told well, we will naturally, as audience members, whether it's a film, whether it's a play, whether it's a novel, whatever the form, whether it's a Harry Chapin story, right? Um, we will identify with the protagonist
1: mm-hmm. in his,
0: her or his weaknesses and strengths. If, if we buy into the story, buy into their, their journey towards a promised land, we're rooting for them. Even if they don't look for like us, even if they're not the same socioeconomic class, even if they're not the same race or ethnicity, uh, w- uh, gender, we will root for them. and One of the natural byproducts of rooting for a well-constructed protagonist, whether it's Dorothy in Wizard of Oz, whether it's Hamlet, it will cultivate our empathetic capacity. Mm. That is always a good thing to mm. cultivate our empathetic capacity. By the way, in, in Augustine's Confessions, which is an interesting title given our uh, given our, our, our discussion topic. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he complains about the theater that he saw in in, in some of the, uh, the the theaters of the Roman Empire, and some of the images that he wishes he could erase from his mind, and he couldn't even after his conversion, you know, years and years later, one of the things I wish he had written more about is how this gift of story, even with protagonists that that we would never want to in real life identify, but in a story we. Empathize with them, and that experience of empathy, I argue, cultivates our capacity to be empathetic. And as D- Abraham Joshua Heschel said, it's empathy more than any other characteristic that leads to piety, empathy mm-hmm. that leads to holiness. So I would say uh, that that uh, that artists. In, in, a, in a sanctuary environment where there's not hyper-competitiveness, being able to embrace, empathize with each other, encourage each other, see how, what each other can become, um, and even to, to comfort them in, in, in the midst of risk that failed is a very holy, a very godly, a very important thing for the mm,
1: world. Mm, that's good. Paul, uh, thank you very much for today. great fun. Well, there you have it. I do want to mention Paul's book. It's titled, Prophetically Incorrect, A Christian Introduction to Media Criticism. As always, thanks
0: for listening and have a great week.